0: Hello, I'm Pete, and I'd like to welcome you to Get Flushed, the world's favorite sanitation podcast. If you're a long time listener, welcome back. And if you've only just discovered Get Flushed, it's lovely to meet you. My guest this week is author and journalist Lena Zeldovich. I met with Lena a couple of weeks ago to discuss her new book, The Other Dark Matter. Now, I'll start by saying it's an absolutely fantastic read, and I'm really excited that Lena took the time to join me on the show. Before we hear from her, I'd like to thank Ross Ambrose and the team at AAA PorterServe in High Springs, Florida. Once again, Ross has made a generous donation to help me keep Get Flushed in production, and he also sent the following message. Hey Pete, just listen today while working on payroll. Aside from the content, I'm really impressed with the networks you're building, people who share an interest in sanitation that are talking and being brought together by your podcast. Happy to support you and what you're doing for the industry. Well, thank you, Ross. I really do appreciate your support. And it's very reassuring to know that the show is hitting the right notes with key players in the industry like yourself. I've also been asked this week whether there'll be a new title sponsor for Get Flush now that Sanitrax International has been acquired by Satellite Industries. Well, the short answer is that I have had offers from other companies who wanted to sponsor the entire season. It would have been really easy to say yes, but I'll be really honest. After two years with Sanitrax, I wanted to try something a little different this year. I'd actually like to keep the show ad free. Unfortunately, running a decent podcast does incur costs. And I've tried to come up with ways that allow me to cover those costs without detracting from the content of the show. So rather than have a single sponsor this year, I'm going to run the occasional advert for product, service or brands that I think are adding value to the sanitation industry, but also fit well with the purpose of Get Flushed. I won't be running them in every episode and I'll only be running one advert because frankly, I don't want you reaching for the fast forward button. I didn't include an advert last week because I didn't want to disrupt my conversation with Stephanie Weir and the same applies today. You're going to hear my full interview with Lena Zeldovich. No breaks, no ads and no interruptions. (music) Lena, good morning. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm great. What time is it there?
1: It's 2 p.m.
0: Okay, that's quite respectable. Yeah. yeah. This is the earliest I've been up for an interview for ages, but thank you very much for joining me on the show.
1: Oh, okay. What time is it there? 8 a.m. Okay, I'm sorry that you had to wake up so early. I totally didn't realize that.
0: No, it's my pleasure, honestly. I'll start by saying, Lena, what a fabulous book you've written, The Other Dark Matter. I absolutely love it. It's brilliant.
1: Oh, thank you so much for being a fan.
0: Because we're in New Zealand, freight takes forever to get here at the moment. So I've been listening on Audible and it's just such a compelling listen. I've gone over it several times. I think I'm on about the third or fourth listen. Wow. The level of detail you've included is amazing.
1: I'm impressed that someone can actually listen to it more than once because when I was writing the book, and particularly when I finished, I had this moment of sheer panic. I was like, What was I even thinking? Who is going to read a book about shit, an entire book about shit, let alone listen to it? So it's very nice to hear that some people do.
0: Well, I thought the same about my podcast, but it turns out that we're part of a new wave. And Pooh is the new black, I think, that everybody wants to be in this business. Everyone wants to talk about it. <laughs> I'm just blown away with how much detail you managed to include and the historical stuff especially. How on earth did you research all of that? The depth of detail is incredible.
1: Well, I only had 15 months to research and write the entire book, even a little bit less by the time all the contracts stuff was finished. But I did a lot of work prior to that when I was writing the proposal in which I outlined what the book was going to be about, what the chapters are going to be about, what I already knew. So I sort of had a roadmap and then I just followed the roadmap. I did discover a lot of new things about history while I was doing research specifically for the book and writing the chapters. It was really fascinating to me to what extent our ancestors had similar trouble with their poo and how they dealt with it in a very different way. So basically, humans started having problems with their shit disposal the moment they stopped being nomadic and started farming. Because before that, they could always walk away from their deposits and just keep walking down the plains and chasing gazelles and deer and whatever. And once they started farming, they could no longer walk away from their shit. And sure enough, shit began to pile up. And once people started living in bigger cities, there was really no place to go. Basically, we've been dealing with it ever since. What's interesting to me is that different societies took it very differently. A lot of societies didn't want anything to do with it. Just we kind of don't today. But some dealt with it better than others. In particularly in Asia, the Chinese and the Japanese societies were really good at figuring out how to recycle them. They had this incredibly amazing operations that ran so well that they could keep huge cities clean. You know, cities of a million, three million, six million people in China. In the 1700s, if you think about it, it's, it, you know, it's the size of a you know, massive European capital that had no sanitation whatsoever.
0: And that's hugely sophisticated. Yeah. But were kept clean because the infrastructure just worked. The social fabric, really, just
1: worked. The social fabric, yeah. So the conduit was really not the pipes, but the people. Yeah. People had incredibly organized collections of their excrement. These special organizations kind of divided cities in chunks or pieces, and they were called night soil collectors. Well, what night soil, you know, stood for the excrement because people usually put out their chamber pots out the door in the morning to be collected. And so as people walked through cities with carts, you know, they gathered these buckets, they put them onto their carts, they took them to the wharfs, they loaded them up into boats, and then the boats put the cities out, put out to the countryside where farmers would put it on the field. And that was very true for China and Japan.
0: And we're talking about hundreds of years ago, aren't we, Lena? It's not recent history. This was happening. Three, four, five hundred years ago?
1: Yeah, you know, 1700s, 1800s, probably was happening even before that, but that's like where the really good records are that you can find, that you can, you know, cite.
0: And I'm blown away by that because one of my good friends, his grandfather, was the last night soil man in New Zealand as recently as 1980. Wow. He was working in Nelson at the top of the South Island and was doing exactly what you've described, but doing it in modern times, in a modern economy like New Zealand. And it's just incredible. We think we're really advanced. But the reality is people have been dealing with this very well in some cultures for many, many years, haven't they?
1: Yeah. And when I tried to research what was the difference, why some cultures so eagerly embraced their night soil and others were completely repulsed by it, Interestingly enough, it boiled down to their soil conditions. Cultures that existed in places where soils were poor and they naturally wouldn't grow a lot of food and you had to work really hard to make the soils fertile, that's where poor really became commodity where it was needed, where life just wouldn't happen without it. And so people got very thrifty at at figuring out how to bring it back from the city to the countryside, how to apply it, when to apply it, how to store it, you know, how to let it, you know, to sit there and, you know, biodegrade during the winter and then put it in the fields in the spring and so on. And in Europe, that apparently wasn't so much of a pressure.
0: You think that's because of the quality of the soil?
1: Europeans were really blessed with the abundance of forests. If a farmer needed to clear a new patch of land, he would just cut down a few trees and there would be a new field. It wasn't like that in Japan and China. A new field would be basically just about bare, and it was kind of like sandy and very poor. So people had to really work at making their soils grow food. So did those
0: Asian economies ever install underground sewers in the same way that we did in Europe and North America?
1: Eventually, yes. I think in the 20th century, that's where all of that came to an end, because that seemed like the new and good and healthy and and sanitary standard.
0: We're feeling the backlash of that now because the sewer systems in New Zealand, and and I know in, in other parts of the world, are starting to fail because they're over 100, 150 years old. And we're starting to feel the impact of that now, either in the cost of reinvestment to upgrade them Yep. And we we had that massively here after the earthquakes in 2010, 2011, that the, the underground sewers ruptured. So there'd been new sewer lines laid. And in fact, we've gone to a low pressure system. So every household now that's built has to have a, an electric pump in the front yard to pump the waste into the main sewer. Whereas before it was all done on gravity, but the ground slumped so much that the gravity system wouldn't work anymore.
1: Um. How interesting. Well, I think every every part of the world has its own problems. And this one is new to me. I'll just I'm just gonna add it to my list.
0: The other thing we've seen here is urban sprawl. We've got a central city, Christchurch, and then around it are different local authorities. And the councils have built new wastewater treatment plants and installed new sewers, and that's given the green light to massive urban sprawl which didn't happen 15 years ago because there simply weren't the sewer connections to facilitate that. But now we've seen huge subdivisions and small towns pop up where there weren't any, and it's all been facilitated by the fact that there are new sewers.
1: I can totally see how sewers can be sort of a driver of the urban development. It makes a lot of sense. That's basically the first thing you need when you plan the city.
0: But cities were evolving and developing, and I, and I was absolutely captivated by your chapter on Japan, And I found that incredibly interesting, A, because it was so long ago, but secondly, because the social fabric, and I mean the structure of the society that built up around that, with your hierarchies of of citizens performing particular roles, is absolutely fascinating and incredible. And I wondered how you'd managed to research that. Where did you find the primary material to inform that section of the book?
1: That did take some archival research in different places. One of my you go to places was JSTOR i found a lot of articles there and then you know those articles had references and so i followed the references it was really hard to find a living human being to talk about it because it was so long ago and so much not part of the modern society that i just didn't even think i was going to find anybody but i did i found an economics researcher in Japan who did her PhD actually here in the United States, talking about to what extent excrement used to be part of the economics in pre-industrial Japan. And so she, she became one of my sources. I kind of found her late in the game, but I was very excited. and ended up rewriting the whole chapter with her in it. And so she was a really great source. She also taught me to pronounce the name of the ninth soil in Japanese properly, which is Shimagoya which literally means fertilizer from the bottom of a person, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) which is such a great concept.
0: It is. And it's incredible that there was somebody else out there who'd done that amount of detailed research. Having run the podcast for two years, I've I've met so many fantastic people who are talking about and and working in this field. But that's incredible that you managed to find somebody who'd researched that particular angle.
1: Yeah. Originally, when I was first starting to work on the book, I had thought about going to China and researching it there, but it was quite complicated because I didn't really have any good entry points. I didn't know a human being who would help me with the language barrier. I kind of give up on that, but I was very glad to find this, uh, this Japanese professor. Kaya Tajima was your name.
0: Excellent. I'll oh, we'll make sure we we'll give her a shout in the podcast. Well, thank you. You said you only had 15 months to write the book, but it, it feels that it's a lifetime's work, to be honest, when you listen back to it or read it through.
1: Yeah, it was an interesting year. Um, I did manage to uh, go travel to a few places where I could go reasonably easily and you know, interview people in their element. One of you know, my favourite places you know, to visit that is, it, you know, is now in my book was Madagascar, where the concept of sanitation takes on a whole different meaning. There are places in this world where sewage system can't be built. It just doesn't make any sense to even try it. It's not even so much for the money, but because it won't work there. Places that either have too much water or not enough water can't work without water-based systems. Obviously, if you don't have water, you can't flush, but when you have too much water, your sewage pipes will overflow way too much, which kind of defeats the purpose why you even doing this. That's Madagascar. Madagascar gets flooded so regularly and so intensely that people living in the capital grow rice in their front yards in rice paddles. Like this is how much water there is. Traditionally, people dig holes in the ground and build little shacks over it, latrines, or they just head into the bush. The problem with both, and probably particularly with latrines, is that when it rains for five days and it floods, all this stuff comes out of your latrines and floats into you know, people's yards and their living rooms because it's kind of like everything is there together in the, you know, little houses. And it's a huge problem, not only in Madagascar, but in many parts of the developing world, because once that fecal matter leaches into groundwater, and, you know, into drinking water, it spreads disease I've been working on this for so long, and every now and then I go back to my you know, sources, to like the Center for Disease Control here in the States, you know, and check their numbers. And the numbers are still the same. Something like 2,000 children die a day from diarrheal diseases. This day is going to end for you and me, and 2,000 children somewhere, we are going to be dead.
0: It's a sobering thought, isn't
1: it? it completely. It's, it's just like you start to appreciate what we've built here, you know, regardless of the issues that revolve around that. There are some startups that are trying different approaches to this whole human waste management problem. They are doing the so-called container-based sanitation in which rather than you're accumulating this in some pits or living this in the bush or building, laying down pipes, there is a service that goes through the neighborhoods and picks up people's output in buckets or biodegradable bags that are sort of like placed underneath the specially built toilets. Essentially, if you think about it, it is very similar to what was done in China, in Japan, you know, 300 years ago.
0: The modern evolution of the night soil men, really.
1: Basically, yeah. People pay for the service. In China and Japan, it was the opposite. It was the farmers who paid to get the shimagoya. So here people pay for the service to remove it, but the concept is still fairly similar. You take it out of the picture then you convert it into something useful rather than you dumping it into the ocean or wherever. And different startups have different approaches. So the one in Madagascar loads it up into a biodigester where a bunch of microorganisms chew through it, releasing methane, which can be cooked with, or, you know, boil water and whatnot. And the rest basically becomes compost that can be used for farming.
0: That's a fairly quick process as well, isn't it, by by many standards. I I know if you have a compost pile of human excrement outside and leave it to nature, it takes 6 to 12 months. But biodigesters are a much quicker alternative to that. The timescales reduce massively.
1: Yeah, I think something like two months, two to three months is pretty much enough, yeah.
0: I was talking to a chap who's been working in Nepal and he's just about to launch a biodigester, which has got a heating element, which pasteurizes the waste as well as converts it into gas and compost. So that there's a huge amount of development going on in this space. It's a really popular field for technological advance at the moment.
1: Yeah, pasteurization is a really good way to go because it kills, you know, the unwanted microorganisms, all the pathogens, Yeah.
0: In Madagascar, then, are there a range of different providers or is it tended to be one company or is it community-based organizations?
1: Well, when I was there, it was really one little startup um, that was piloting their program. And I think they're still in this sort of a semi-pilot mode. I don't think they've grown up to scale. But in other parts of the world, um, I'd say this movement is definitely picking up speed because there's another startup in Kenya that collects it in buckets and converts it to these burnable briquettes that you can cook with. There is one in Haiti that turns it into soil. There is one, I believe in Kenya also, that Feeds it to the larvae of black flies and then harvests the larvae and feeds it to pigs. So, it kind of like becomes part of agriculture. Yeah. So, there are just so many things you can do with it. It's usually the question of sort of breaking through our natural inhibitions and probably investing some money to start with
0: i spoke to kuldeep from the world toilet board coalition a couple of weeks ago he's in delhi and he was telling me that most of his work goes into education because people genuinely need to be educated trained helped to achieve the cultural shift where they'll actually use the bathroom facilities that are being installed because culturally they've always defecated in the open or in the bush, and this is actually a, a significant change for them. And it takes quite a while to get people to adopt the new techniques or new methods.
1: There's a lot of truth to that. I mean, anything humans do is a habit. You know, we eat certain habits in different in different parts of the world. We go to the bathroom in a different way, different habits. So it is true. I have gone to India you know, for this book also. And you know, there, there's certain cultural traditions that are really ingrained in people's minds. And that's how they want it, because that's how their you know, parents and grandparents did it. And so early in the morning in some remote village in India, you know, women gather up together and they go to the right of the village, while men do the same. They go to the left. And as they do it, it is their social moment. They all chat. You know, between themselves about their kids, their husbands, their grandparents, and who is sick and who got better and who is doing what. It takes them sometimes to go out and sometimes to come back, and it's it's a great social time. And then they start the busy day, and they you know, just you're know, too busy to see each other. They don't want to lose it. They don't want to stand in line to a toilet to one and only toilet that stinks and there are flies. You, know, you can find a nice, you know, pleasant place in the bush. There are plenty of bushes. Like, why do I need this? People need to find the structures appealing and convenient and comfortable.
0: I can understand that. But again, at the same time, if we introduce systems that prevent human waste contaminating the water supply and, and becoming a, a spreader of disease, the social, medical, health benefits of that are absolutely enormous. And the one thing that I've been impressed reading the book is that those alternative systems are are usually low cost and fairly easy to implement. There's not a huge technological barrier. They're not massively resource hungry. They don't need millions of dollars of investment. They're fairly simple and basic programs that can be instituted quite quickly on the ground.
1: Absolutely. I mean, what's funny is, you know, through my entire work, whether on the book or before, it's usually not the technology that is a problem. It's usually, you know, people who are the don't want to use it or don't bother or don't see the point because the old ways are better.
0: Yeah,
1: Working on the book, I was surprised how many different solutions exist there for almost every setting, urban, suburban, rural, pretty much anything. One of my favorites was this little system developed in Israel where it's basically a household digester where you can put um It started with the food waste, but they now have versions that can be attached to low water toilets that don't flush a lot of water.
0: This is home biogas
1: yeah that's that's home biogas, and so basically what residents get out of it is they put all this organic refuse into it, and out comes you know comes the biogas and fertilizer for the garden now that's like a such a great monetary incentive even for people who would have not been using a toilet. But if you put your metabolic output in it and out comes something that you cook with and something you can fertilize your garden with, then why not? It starts to make sense.
0: I've reached out to the home biogas people and I've not been able to make much progress. I'd love them to come on the show. There's a fairly active Facebook group of people who've got home biogas digesters and, and have installed them all around the world. And the common theme that comes up in that group is that you need a very warm, ambient air temperature. They don't work in colder regions. It needs heat from the outside. And there'll be a technological way to get around that, whether you can install a a heating element that's powered by the biodigester itself or whether you contain it in a shed. But the common feeling is that they need decent outside air temperature
1: that is true which is one reason why it probably would work in a lot of places in asia africa and south america and the heating element it probably can be added i'm sure at some point they're going to work on it the home biogas folks will come up with something because yes that is one of the challenges Yeah, those microbes need to be warm and comfy
0: that leads me into one of the questions i emailed you which is Chelsea spoke about this, that the gold standard of a plum sewer has been held up as the pinnacle of modern sanitation systems for over 100 years. But we're starting to perhaps feel and consider that it's not the clean solution that perhaps we've all been led to believe, that they're hugely intensive in terms of the water demand. The cost of building planned sewers is absolutely enormous. And then you have to maintain and and replace them as they age and, and start to fail. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where alternatives to the plum sewer become a reality for the majority of people in the world?
1: I think it, it will be the climate change that is going to push us there. And it is already pushing us there, even here in the developed world where our systems so far are working quite well in you know, mass, except for some sewage spills, some broken pipes and some issues here and there. But I think it will be the, the reality of our future life that will do it. You know, for starters, we're going to start running out of clean water. Here in the East Coast of the United States, where I am, we're still fine water-wise. But on the West Coast, we, we're not. The droughts are really severe and people have to learn to conserve water. One of the best ways to conserve water is use some kind of an alternative to flushing toilets. So if you do, then reclaim this water right after you flushed. I am seeing you know some solutions you know, happening there. They're not in the book because while well, I was researching the book, they weren't quite there in the public eye yet, but they got to the point where they're being deployed now. There is a company out there in the West Coast, Epic Clean Tech, that is now installing this sort of plug-in systems that can be attached to building plumbing. And I'm talking about the big buildings plumbing, big apartment buildings, so big office buildings in the basement that are going to divert that water from going into the sewage, clean the water and return it back to the building's water supply as a gray water, not portable water, but grey water that can be you can flush with, or maybe even you know wash your clothes with and then extract you know the so-called biosolids, you know, all this ugly yucky stuff out of that system and convert it into a form of fertilizer. So that type of solution is perfect you know, for the urban sprawl. You know, maybe it's for each building or for a group of buildings. But it's happening already because as the population grows, you know, we can't keep increasing our resource use. We have to think about how we can reuse what we're using.
0: I've been doing some work with a company called Sludgehammer up in Canada. I don't know if you've come across them.
1: That sounds familiar.
0: It's almost like a drop-in unit that you put into a septic tank. And it aids digestion. And and they've told me that there's a cruise ship moored up in Qatar. It's used to house workers who are building the stadium for the Football World Cup later this year. And all of the waste produced by the workers on board the ship goes down into the hold in the ship. And there's a sludge hammer unit in there. And they've told me that actually it allows them to discharge clean water into the ocean. Previously they would have needed to pump the hold clean and transport that waste somewhere else. And this system allows them to effectively discharge fresh water into the into the sea around the boat.
1: Yeah, that sounds like the type of the solution that the world is going to be implementing new more and more.
0: I'll have to chase that up with them when I do the interview. But if they could then convert the solid mass into some form of fuel that powers the boat, that would be an even bigger win for them, I think. But
1: That would be absolutely terrific, yeah.
0: Nirvana, it really would. I'm fascinated by the whole topic, Lena. And again, I'll congratulate you on what is an incredibly well-produced and researched book. And it fits in really well with the other bodies of work that have been produced on this subject in the last few years. And I'm particularly thinking about Rose George's book and Chelsea Wald's book. And I have to ask you, were you influenced and were you aware of those other works when you started your project?
1: Well, Chelsea's book was in the works just when mine was in, in the works. And it happened completely independently of each other. I actually sold my book first. And then a few months later, Chelsea sold hers. And Chelsea was a friend, so I knew she did that. And it was funny because I still at that point felt like, oh, my God, I mean, I'm writing a book about poo. Who's going to read that? So knowing that there's another, I felt like I wasn't all alone in this huge (laughs) sea of shit. You know, somebody else was swimming against the sewage tide with me.
0: It's lovely to hear you say that. and They really do complement each other really well, these two particular books, not just in timing, but in the way you've approached the subject. You've both taken a, an independent and unique view, but they complement each other so well.
1: Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. You know, she approached it from the perspective of humans need toilets, better toilets for the sake of human health and dignity. And you know, my approach was people, there's money in shit it's up for grabs. What are you waiting for? Uh,
0: <laughs> well, it, it's a huge global industry and, and it's one that's only going to grow as the population increases. And it's one that the demand is never going to disappear. There'll, I, I, there'll never be a point in, in any time in history where humans don't defecate. It's just not going to be possible. No,
1: no, it's never going to happen. And Rose's book was, yes, I knew about that book for a long time. I think I probably read it about a dozen times altogether. First when it first came out and periodically, you know, very much aligned kind of with the way I looked at excrement. I grew up in a very different kind of situation. I grew up on my grandfather's farm and my grandfather fertilized a farm with the content of our own septic tank. He had a system of compost pits and all sorts of things. So I never thought of it as waste. I never thought of it as particularly dangerous as long as you do everything right. I thought it was a part of the circle of life, which is what it is. So when I read Rose's book, it was like, yeah, of course. Like, why are we doing more of it? And what a brave woman she was that she took such a firm stand on the fact that we should be talking about this topic and not pretending like, you know, we don't even produce it.
0: Maybe one legacy for me from Rose's book is that I've had so many open, frank and sensible conversations with people like yourself about poo that every time I finish recording I pinch myself because maybe five, ten years ago we wouldn't have had these conversations as openly and freely because we just didn't talk about it, did we?
1: No, no, definitely not. Definitely not ten years ago. Five, you know, maybe I think, things were sort of started to open up. And I think the poo Imagine did a lot of it. (laughs) It kind of removed the taboo. But I can tell you that when my agent was shopping the book around, the big publishing houses passed on it, not because they didn't like the writing, not because they didn't like the idea. They actually, they liked the idea, the writing, the angle they just didn't know how to talk about it between themselves they didn't know how to discuss it at the office meetings and with marketing people and what to even put on the cover
0: well i had that chat with chelsea when when she came on the show last year we'd spent ages talking about the language of poo, <laughs> the language of poo. <laughs> <laughs> i think it will resonate with a lot of people that you you just managed to tell the story in such a clean way and without being sensationalist and it, it is truly fascinating
1: It's an amazing substance, you know, and and we'll carry it within. And that's what I wanted the people to take away from my book. uh, You know, we're all super poopers. The substance that we produce on a regular basis really should be put to good use. It's a waste to waste it.
0: Jack Sim said that to me when I I interviewed him. He said, you know, Pete, we're all experts in sanitation from the moment we're born. We (laughs) all know about this. Yeah, exactly. Is there a message that you want to leave with listeners, either about the book or about sanitation in general, Lena?
1: I think you know, the message I want to leave uh, the listeners with is exactly like I said. We all accelerate it, we produce it regularly. It just piles up there and nobody wants it. That means that you can take it for free and somebody will pay you to take it away. And then you can have a second stream of revenue by converting it to just about anything you want. You know, to biogas, to fertilize it, to burnable briquettes, and even in the form of a crude oil that requires more sophisticated technology. But it is an incredibly versatile resource that is also fully renewable. It's going to be there for as long as there are humans. So grab it while nobody else did and make some money on it.
0: There is plenty of opportunity to make money. That's the one thing that I've learned about the sanitation business over the last two years. It's a very profitable business.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Really important for us to say to listeners: A, how can they find out more about Lena? And B, how can they find out more about your fabulous book?
1: Um, well, that's actually quite easy. You just need to Google my first and last name, Lena Zeldovich. According to all the social platforms, your Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, I am the only one. I haven't yet seen another Linus Eldridge. So it's very easy to find me on all of those um, you know, three and, and my site too. My book is available pretty much everywhere where books are sold. You know, Amazon, uh, Goodreads, Barts and uh, I'm not sure what might be the equivalent in New Zealand, uh, but it can certainly be downloaded as a Kindle book and as Audible too.
0: And the Audible book is a fabulous listen. I, I'll keep saying it. Um, if you've got a particular link, maybe a patron link that you want me to include in the show notes, Lena, I'm more than happy to do that for you.
1: OK, I can do that. I'll send you a link near directly to the University of Chicago. And there's a 20 percent off that comes with it. You know, code. I'll send you that, too.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm going to urge all Get Flush listeners to buy the book because it is just a, a brilliant read and I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to it. Um, I'm absolutely delighted you've been on the show. It's been great. Thank you, Lena.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Bye. Bye. I said it several times during that conversation. I'll say it again now. The Other Dark Matter is an absolutely fantastic book. If you haven't read it, please do. And if you'd like to win a copy, please leave a message at podinbox.com slash getflushed telling me which country Lena was born in, which country she lives in now and which country you're listening from. And if you do enter, remember to press save and leave your email address so that I can get in touch to arrange delivery. That's podinbox.com slash getflushed. I'll close by thanking Lena for joining me on the show. My guest next week is Vinu Gupta from the World Toilet Board Coalition, who joined me from New Delhi to tell me all about his work supporting sanitation entrepreneurs all around the world. Once again, thank you for your time. I've been Pete, and you've been listening to Get Flushed, the world's favourite sanitation podcast.